loyalties. Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. Just can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. I don't even think I know what song that is. I just know that's how it goes. Kendrick Lamar song. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing Chapter 7, Loyalties. And we dive right in with Wintrow finishing up pretty much where we uh, left off with Althea storming away and Brashen, you know, following her into the city. We switch back over to Wintrow and he is discussing the rest of the day, particularly the preparations and the process of the funeral and introduction of Vivacia. So this is a really interesting way to start because through Wintro we get a look at the whole proceedings of a old traitor funeral through the lens of someone who's kind of neutral. So he is telling us all the things that we need to know about the ceremony and we get to also feel like outsiders with him because none of this feels normal to him either. Yeah, uh, particularly, and Ronica does remind him of this, that he's been away from Bingtown for a very long time, probably at an age when he should have been learning more about traditions and how things happened in Bingtown. So he missed out on all of those formative, you know, introductions of the basics of live ships. So we see through his eyes that it's really weird (laughs) for this funeral. Everyone is... Yes, coming up and offering condolences. And there's a ton of people. Everyone's kind of coming out and offering condolences, but also very quick congratulations on the ship as well. So in Wintrow's mind, it's kind of warring between happiness and sadness, and he doesn't really grasp the concept that to the Bingtown traders, Efren isn't gone, really. He's like living on in the ship, and that's a huge point of pride for old traders. Right. So he says, it stirred his pride that so many turned out to honor his grandfather, but it seemed uncouth that so many of them offered first their condolences and then their congratulations on the quickening of the ship. And his grandmother is kind of the only one, he says, is the only one who notices him kind of being off put and a little bit out of the loop on everything. And so she quietly tells him one time that he had been too long away from Bingtown and its customs that they congratulated her on the ship did not diminish one whit the grief they felt that Efren had died. It was simply not the way of Bingtown folk to dwell on the tragic. Why, if the founders of Bingtown had dwelt on their tragedies, they would have drowned in their own tears. He nodded to her, her explanations, but kept his own private counsels as to what he thought of that. And I thought that was good and bad. It really does show Wintrow's upbringing and his faults. Right. Because... In the monastery, he learned how to, you know, confront his feelings and really think through everything. Very processed way of like, why am I thinking this? Is this a true feeling or is this just like a rash reaction to things? And then fully feeling his emotions and things like that. He thinks that's the only good way to do things. When Barandal is out here like, you're calling all these other people who haven't gone through the monastery, like animals. Right, right. (laughs) There's other ways to do things. And I think that kind of expresses itself here. 
because he doesn't know what it's like to struggle in Bingtown or in anything really. Right. He's had a very easy life so far. <laughs> Even if it was, you know, a bear in the monastery, he was loving it. Right. You know, he hasn't had to worry about money. He hasn't had to, you know, just move on from something tragic and keep going to keep yourself fed. Right. <laughs> or anything like that. And I think that shows in his thoughts there. I mean, I yeah. agree with him that they seem to be like moving past the tragedy quite easily, but it's a celebration of life and it's just a different custom that he's not used to. Right. It kind of makes me think of how, um, I believe it's down in Louisiana where yeah. they have the celebrations of life where that is the, just part the second line. Or yeah. Something like that. I think that's what it's called. Um, but where it's just something that is not necessarily done in other parts of the U S but there it is really big and it's more to celebrate the life instead of focus on the bad. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it that way. I think it's just different than what I grew up doing. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how through Wintrow's eyes, it doesn't make a lot of sense because he is, like you said, young and naive. But I think also because of what you said, he was away from the traditions. It doesn't feel natural, which I think in some sometimes can be a good viewpoint to have because sometimes we do traditions without really thinking, why are we doing them? Just because you've always done them. And so it's nice that he has the outside perspective to say, hey, this is kind of weird. Um, that, you know, leads to opportunities of growth in and of itself. Yeah. But in this moment, it is kind of funny how I almost felt like he was very Kyle in the <laughs> way that he was like, yeah, okay, grandma. Like, yeah, this is <laughs> weird. Sure. Yeah. You, you believe whatever you want to believe. And obviously he was much more respectful than Kyle could ever be. But <laughs> I, I do, I do find it interesting how he struggles with this. I, this warring idea of happiness and sadness happening at the same time, especially because saw seems to be a God of con contradictions. And yeah. I would feel like this would, fit in with one of Saw's many contradictions. Maybe he hasn't gotten there yet. Maybe not. But I do think it is kind of a cool way to celebrate a life. And I guess it would be hard, right? Like you do want to acknowledge this great thing because the Vivacia has finally awoken, but at the same time, somebody did die. So Right. And, and it does really make sense as well because everything in Bingtown is based around these live ships. That's right. their whole livelihood and the one advantage that they've had and that made them prosperous over the years is that this amazing wood and the amazing products from the wild Rainwild um, really kind of shaped Bingtown. So to have this full belief, this culture that's like, well, these people, our ancestors are living on in these ships. They're not truly gone. Yeah, it totally makes sense to then congratulate the awakening of the ship and, you know, have a ceremony for that. Right. Right. No. And there is a little bit of weirdness. I think the first part where there is congratulations with the sorrow to me felt fine. But as he goes on to describe a little bit more of the spectacle that this funeral is, I think I understand more the discomfort that he would feel, especially as someone who the only real 
experience he's had with grief before now is with strangers through monastery training where they're wrapped in grief and there isn't really a lot of celebration there. It's not a big ceremony. It's more, it seemed like people in their homes. (laughs) So it's really interesting to then see Wintro here talking about how it's ostentatious and feels odd and unsafe that they have a large group of boats just going in a circle and then people pressing up to the railings to watch a dead body slip into the water. Yeah. So the, the whole process here that he describes is people come and offer condolences and congratulations, uh, private families and people close to the family itself. And then everyone kind of goes out on their boats. They anchor very closely in a circle and then all watch Vivacia as Captain Efren is slipped over the edge. And then there's another ceremony right after where they introduce Vivacia to everyone. And his grandmother is the one doing that. Right. I should say that the close family or the family and the close friends stay on the vivacious. Yes. They do not go off to the other boats. It's the other people who are coming to wish condolences. Yep. And with the awakening of vivacia and this new ceremony to introduce her to the other ships, we get a description that of where kind of Wintro is in this because they are not near the body of his grandfather anymore. I guess his grandfather has gone overboard at this point yeah. and the burial. Um, but they are by the vivacia there at the top of the deck. And his grandmother is like Luke said, welcoming everyone and introducing them to the vivacia. And then there is his father who is scowling and his mother who is trying to keep control of little Selden and make sure Malta doesn't even look at the young Yeah. So we get a description of Veronica here who is presiding quite solemnly over this this part of the ceremony. She stood on the foredeck and loudly introduced Vivacia to each ship as it was sailed across her bow. Wintrow stood alongside his scowling scowling again, of course, as you mentioned, (laughs) and wondered at both the smile on the old woman's face and the tears that coursed down it. Clearly something had been lost when he was born a haven. Even his mother had looked on glowingly her younger two children standing at her side and waving to each ship in turn. So that's like the large part of it. And then it kind of devolves into Kyle taking control of every aspect of the ship. And then, as you mentioned, Kefria trying to wrangle the two children. Right. I think it's really interesting that Kyle is being so openly, I guess, crabby (laughs) for lack of a better word in this moment, because it's a funeral. Yeah, but it, I, I think it's I think you were apt in describing Wintro's confusion and like this is unnecessary and big like to Kyle's because I think that's what he's feeling right now. It's just like this is so unnecessary. It should be over. The ship's mine. I have a funeral, but this is ostentatious. We don't need to introduce every ship to my ship. I guess the thing that I'm thinking is Kyle seems to be someone who is focused on image and what other people think. So Mm -hmm. it's odd to me that he wouldn't want to have the image of being as ostentatious as possible with the death of this person in town. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's too big on that. I mean, he is a little bit just, just in terms of like traditional gender roles and things like that, but not in the, 
standing of the family in terms of we have to do everything, all the traditions right, like Veronica is. I think he's more of bringing his Chalcedian traditions of like gender roles show a strong front to the family, but we don't need to do all the little stupid old trader stuff. Interesting. Okay. That's my, yeah. my get of it at least. That's my fair. Grasp. Yeah. Um, but he is um, kind of making an uncomfortable air on the ship. He is kind of trying to do a power play because Ronica is on the ship with him and at, and so is Kefria, who I guess is now technically the rightful owner, although she did give it to Kyle. And he is yelling at everyone, including people that are several years his senior, whenever he feels like they're not doing a good enough job. And he's loudly talking about how he has a lot of changes to make and there's going to be a lot of people that leave now that he's in charge to his first mate. And... Even to Wintrow's untrained eye, he recognizes this as just him trying to take control. Yep. And Wintrow is surprised because the first time his father had said those words, something like a grimace of pain crossed Ronica Vestret's features. Observing her quietly the rest of the afternoon, it seemed to Wintrow that the old woman grew graver and graver as the day passed, as if her sorrow for her husband's death took root in her and grew with each passing hour. And I think that's really interesting because this is from Wintrow's perspective and I'm wondering if maybe the fact that she's getting graver and graver has nothing to do with the death of her husband, but maybe everything to do with the fact that maybe she was wrong about Kyle. I think it's both. I think it's both for sure. I mean, she has been suffering for a long time and it's finally over kind of thing. And she right. can grieve now because it's, you know, a funeral. But I, I do agree with you that the first grimace that he did notice was after Kyle was barking stuff or talking about changes. Right. And I don't know. I think... I guess I was thinking she, from what we have seen of her, from her point of view, she seems to be a very strong person that can understand when a task needs to be done and put aside the like need to grieve her husband when it's not a good time to do so. But I wonder if it's harder to not grieve her husband in seeing how Kyle is on the ship that is so different from her husband. Maybe. I don't know. But I did, it did make me wonder if maybe she is starting to regret her, her decision in this moment. Maybe not. Possibly. Who knows? Which was also kind of thinking on Vivacia itself. So he, as he's observing his grandmother, Ronica hasn't really spoken to anybody else after they, the ceremonies were done and they were sailing back. She just stood on the bow and occasionally when she did talk, it was to the figurehead itself. So he kind of remarks and thinks about the vivacia as a being. The very thought of that put a shiver up Wintrow's spine. There was nothing natural about the life that animated that carved artifact, nothing at all of Sa's true spirit in her. While he sensed no evil about her, neither did he sense anything of good. He was glad he had not been the one to insert the peg in her and avoided the foredeck. So that kind of comes up later and then even later in the chapter it's reversed it's really weird so i wanted to bring up that now he and this does have a repeating kind of theme throughout these books when always reflects on saw's being and what that means for vivacia and kind of reorders his thoughts about the world 
in context of vivation and and opening his eyes to the world while he sails as well. So right now, kind of trepidatious and doesn't sense any evil or good in her. Right. I also thought that was really interesting that he talks about sensing uh, because it made me think of the wit. I know we've already discussed how he probably does not have the wit, but I thought this was a little passage that made me think of the wit and how Fitz described forged people. And I wonder if, you know what I mean? A We're little like, bit, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. He could sense life, maybe. I there, don't know. There's an analog there. Sure. I, I, I get what you're you're leaning at, but it's a good, I don't know. It's a good analog, but it's not the same. No, I just think all. it's similar and it made me think of the other. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know if he can really truly sense evil or good. I think well, that's <laughs> that's the weird thing. Why is he so adamant that he can? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he's a wise, arrogant young priest that's who's above all this. <laughs> Remember, he's the only one that's true in the ways of Sa, and he's intelligent like the people who don't believe in Sa are not. That's, yeah. that's where we started with him. That's true. I don't know. I just think it's weird that he talks about how she has nothing of the natural life. Like, what does that mean? I think it's just that uncanny valley. You know, he talks about it later too, but light glints off of uh, Vivacia like it's wood, but her features are all human-like. Yeah. And it looks like, I don't know, it's just kind of probably too fake to be real, but too real to be easily fake. And just in your mind, it creates that uncanny valley of like, this is weird, not right. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. So on the way back, Kyle finally remembers Wintrow after he stumbles into somebody, knocks him down, and Kyle just kind of has to rebuke him and say, look at you, and sends him to some busy work. He specifically says, I don't mean your priest's robes, I mean you. Look at you, a man's years and a boy's body and the wits of a landsman. You can't even get out of your own way, let alone another man's. I found that really interesting because, number one, of course he has the wits of a landsman. He hasn't been raised to be on a boat. He has been raised on the land, so he doesn't know how to hold himself on a boat. That's not a natural thing anybody knows how to do. Also, I hate so much that he is so focused on Wintrow being short and still boyish, even though he's a man, quote unquote, he's like, what, 13 here. Yeah. It's so frustrating because like growth spurts happen at different times for different people. It's not like boys generally have growth spurts later in life. Anyway, it's not that weird. It is normal. It is a hundred percent normal to still be boyish at a young age. Apparently not to Kyle. No, apparently not to Kyle. It just is so strange to me that he's so fixated on this, like, everything about you is wrong. Well, because I I think it kind of relates back to what I was saying before with the Chalcedian values, the family values, the traditional roles that Chalcedians kind of hold dear. The man has to be intimidating, and they fight all the time. Right. they're, They're strong, and they're the true leaders of their own families and have to provide. So with Rintro being scrawny and kind of weak and small, I mean, it doesn't put out a great view in Kyle's mind to any of his crew. Probably it's like, Oh, maybe 
Kyle's like that too. Maybe, you know, whatever. Yeah. It just is weird to me. Cause it's like, does he not understand how children work? No, of course like, not. <laughs> that's a woman's job to he's know been that. sailing. Well, yeah, but like, I don't like, he's never met a ship hand before. Aren't they like 12? Yeah. But I think, so I think with Kyle's remarks repeatedly on this and like some of the sailors and stuff, I think Wintrow is small for his age. I think pretty mm-hmm. much all of the other boys right. are surpassing him around his age. Okay. Which also, like, not a big deal if we have a short king right. on our hands. But, but like, Kyle, whose genetics do you think had a hand in that? Yours, yeah, maybe? probably also a little embarrassed slash mad. Like, how dare you not grow up? You're from yeah. me. You should be perfect. Right. So. I suppose also he does not understand how genetics work because... That's never touched on in this series at all. So we will assume he doesn't uh, excuse understand. Excuse me. They do say you're as much of a Vestrid as a Haven. Okay. They, okay. <laughs> they know a little bit. They, they know they bare know, minimum. They know that last names transfer over. Come on. <laughs> 50, 50 blood here. <laughs> so he is uh, given to Torg, the second mate. And uh, Torg sets him to coiling some rope, recoiling some rope, because to Winter's eye, it looks great. And he coils rope for the rest of the ride home, and his palms become red, and all of the coils look worse than he started, and he just kind of thinks, well, I knew it was busy work anyways. I guess Torg will have to recoil it himself after I'm done here. <laughs> right, because Winter is not expecting to ever be back on this ship after this is over. Yeah. He's saying like, Oh, tomorrow morning would be probably a good time to leave. Right. Also notably when he is called away, he works diligently because that is what he was told to do. So he does it. He is called away by his sister coming to kind of haphazardly be like, if you're done doing whatever you're doing, then you can come join us because we've docked. And it's almost as though she's trying to insinuate that he was there on purpose. And Wintrow makes a comment that he can't get angry about it because he's a Saw's priest. Yeah. <laughs> so it was Malta who sent who was sent to find him, telling him with some asperity that they were dockside and tied up if he'd care to come ashore now. <laughs> and it and it is very funny because it's such a childlike thing. Like this is a, a rare moment of him being his age where he's like annoyed at his little sister, but also kind of weird that his sister is the one who had to come get him. Like, why didn't anybody else tell him? And the way she says it to him makes it seem as though they were all waiting on him. Yeah. Like he should have known. And I do wonder based off of what we see from Torg later, if Torg told Kyle that he had told him they thought like if Kyle said, go tell him that we have landed and Torg pretended to just as like a little hazing thing. I don't know. Could be. Yeah. I don't know. So he goes up on the deck, joins his family as they thanked and bid farewell to those mourners who had accompanied them on board the ship. Not a few said their goodbyes to the living figurehead as well. The summer dusk was venturing into true night as the last person left. So the family is standing there on deck all of the other people have left and they're getting ready to leave. You know, Kyle takes uh, Kefria's arm and, or Kefria takes Kyle's arm and Wintrow's getting ready to take Ronica's to escort off. And 
Vivacious like Are you going? Right now? I'll be back at first light, Kyle told her. He spoke as if a deckhand had questioned his judgment. Are all of you going? The ship asked again. Wintra was not sure what he responded to. Perhaps it was the note of panic in her voice. You'll be all right, he told her gently. You're safe. Tied up to the docks here. There's nothing to fear. I don't want to be alone. The complaint was a child's, but the voice was that of an uncertain young woman. Where's Althea? Why isn't she here? She wouldn't leave me all alone. The mate will sleep aboard, as will half the crew. You won't be alone, Kyle replied testily. Wintrow could remember that tone from his own childhood. His heart went out to the ship despite his better judgment. It's not the same, she cried out, even as he heard himself offer. I could stay aboard if she wished it, for this night at least. His father scowled as if he had countermanded his order, but his grandmother squeezed his arm gently and gave him a smile. Blood will tell, she said softly. The boy can't stay, Kyle announced. I need to speak to him tonight. And Kefri was like, tonight? No, we don't need to talk to him now. We've had too many tears and everything. Blah, blah, blah. That can, that can wait for another day. And Ronica finally kind of chimes in here and says, you know, tomorrow can wait, but I can't. I'm leaving right now. Wintrow can stay. Good on him and everything like that. And everyone is kind of getting to agree that Wintrow should stay aboard the Vivacia for tonight. And... Wintrow's just kind of looking at Kyle because, like, he knows his father has not agreed to it yet. <laughs> and then finally says, yeah, I'll do it if my father approves it. And he decides to be kind of the bigger man, step up and, like, present it to Kyle to appease him, basically. Because he knows that his father needs to approve it before he does anything. And right. he holds, you know, Kyle's eyes. And Wintrow says... His father scowled, but still, Wintrow thought he also saw grudging respect in the man's eyes. I permit it, he said at last. So Wintrow kind of faced Kyle down a little bit and said like, hey, we know this decision was made without you, but I will still ask you for permission. And Kyle took it as respect. I think what's important is I don't think it was respect that he was approving. I think it was the fact that in doing this and Wintrow taking away his grandmother's right to say that he could stay, he was giving more power back to Kyle. He was asserting that Kyle is ultimately the one in charge. It's this, and I don't think that was what Wintrow intended to do, but that is how Kyle, I think, would be taking it. I think yeah, that's the respect bit. he has there. It's like, yes, yeah. take the power away from the woman. <laughs> but I do think it is really important because... Ronica has kind of stepped up and is asking Vivacia what her opinion is. Is it all right if I take Wintrow with me to uh, let him escort me to the cart and then comes back? And she says, that's okay, but I want him to sleep on the deck. And that's when Wintrow says, only if my father permits it. And I think that in doing that, it's he gains respect, if only because he's taking away Ronica's agency to make the decision. And I think that's maybe why things calm down because it seems really tense. Like Kyle is upset that Ronica is trying to force this issue and because he wants to talk to his son, presumably about the fact that his son is going to be taking over Althea's spot. But, you know, in doing this, he did get a little bit of, 
did get a way to save Faith as still being in charge. Yep, exactly. So Kyle makes the last decisions here and says, yeah, you you can stay. See Torg for a blanket when you get back. And then they kind of all prepare to head out. Kyle and Kefria walk ahead with the two little kids and Ronica's dragging behind very slow because she is a grandmother or so Wintrow thinks. And then when she starts talking to him, he realizes that she wanted to talk to him alone. It all seems strange and foreign to you earlier today, Wintrow. Yet just now you spoke as a vestrit, and I believe I saw your grandfather in your face. The ship reaches for you. Grandmother, I fear I have no idea what you are talking about, he confessed quietly. Don't you? She halted their slow stroll, and he turned to face her. Small but straight, she looked up into his face. You say you don't, but I see otherwise, she said after a moment. If you did not already know it yourself, in your heart, you could not have spoken up for the ship the the way you did. You'll come to it, Wintrow. You'll come round to it in time, no fear. He felt a tightening of foreboding. He wished he were going home with them tonight, and that he could sit down with his father and mother and speak plainly. Obviously, they had discussed him. He did not know what they had been talking about, but he felt threatened by it. Then he sternly reminded himself to avoid prejudgment. His grandmother said no more, and he assisted her down the gangplank and then handed her into the waiting carriage. All the others were already within. Thank you, Wintrow, she told him gravely. And you're welcome, he replied. But uncomfortably, for he suspected she thanked him for more than walking her to the carriage. He wondered briefly whether he would truly welcome giving her whatever it is she assumed. And obviously she is kind of talking about being there for Vivacia, bonding with Vivacia, and being Vivacia's companion and blood on board. Ronica thinks that she can see the bond already beginning to take place, and that, you know, she knows that Wintro is the assumed person to go on the ship now (laughs) because Kyle's not going to have Althea. So she is grateful that somebody who is going to be on board is one Vestra blood and two seems to care for the ship's well-being. So Ronica is thanking Wintro and Wintro's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, lady. Let me go home tomorrow. (laughs) I think this is really interesting. So I want to ask, do you think he does have some, weird genetic connection to this boat in this moment in what we've just read. If I took it plainly just this, no, not really. But with the context of the rest of the chapter, there has to be some sort of connection. And yes, I believe all of the Vestrits, people who have Vestrit blood, have some connection. But if you're talking Bond specifically, nothing like what we've seen with Althea, but she did grow up on the ship. Right. Okay. See, I was thinking, I don't think in this scene where Ronica is convinced that this is the spark of a bond and it shows that he has true Vestrit blood, I don't think it was anything more than compassion that led him to speak out. I think he is a very compassionate person that we've seen. He seems to really care about comforting others. That seems to bring him some sort of joy. And... I think that's all this was in this moment. And Ronica is digging deeper because in my mind, that's what she wants to see. Yes. In my mind, that's what she wants to see. She also has seen that Kyle doesn't care about the ship at all. Maybe she's making a horrible mistake, but then seeing that, Oh, well at least a boy child will take over and he cares about the ship. 
eventually. Right. I think maybe she's just trying to make herself feel better about taking this away from her daughter. Possibly. And, and I definitely see that. But then there's the second part of this chapter where Vivesha and him talk and they like do seem to have a very yeah. strong connection already or are feeling something. So at the same time, it could be something deeper, but I, I agree with your read and I, I kind of came up with the same thing that it's wishful thinking on her part, but we do see them have a bond later on and a pretty strong one. So it could have started here. Sure. I think, I think I have some ideas on their bond later in this chapter that I'm excited to talk about, but for now, yes, I think this is more just Ronica having wishful thinking that like, see, she didn't make that big of a mess, <laughs> but she is gone and he needs to make his way back. Um, it's a little bit difficult because it is dark now. So he is making his way back. Oh, also, I forgot to mention, it did specifically say that his grandmother looked up into his eyes. Yeah. So if he's short, quote unquote, how short is Ronica? Ronica's tiny. Like, I, that's all I'm thinking about now is like, okay, so he keeps getting made fun of for being short, but like Ronica's shorter than him. Also, his mom might have been described as shorter than him. Mm, I don't she's know. She's a small woman is what he's said about her. That doesn't yeah. necessarily mean she's shorter than him. Right. Either way. Anyway, he's going back to the Vivacia and as he goes down the, I don't know, the, the walkway, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what they're called, dock down the dock. Um, he sees Vivacia kind of for the first time from a land perspective. And like we said earlier, he notices that the light flickers off of her like wood, even though she looks human. Yeah. And he, he makes remarks about all of the ships there actually, because yes. he's very unfamiliar with ships in general. And he says, a shiver walked up his spine as he realized the live ship's awareness after thinking they were like great wooden animals. Neither animal nor wooden ship, he realized, but some unholy mix and wondered how he could have volunteered to spend the night aboard her. So that's that's like the first hint of like, it could be compassion, but like he has these weird thoughts about Vivacious, like this isn't right. And then immediately like, hey, I can spend a night to comfort you. So it's just very quick. Yes, he's compassionate, but like it's a quick turnaround, especially with these off ship thoughts of this is unholy. Right. I think, though, in the moment. She's pleading. It sounds human, you know, he's right. not thinking yeah. about the uncanniness. Yeah. It's like, oh, I feel so bad for this person. And then it's right. like, oh, I'm just yeah, saying that's crazy. where like yeah, the hint yeah. could come in. Right. For sure. Yeah, he he's walking down. And like you said, the. The torchlight is dancing on Vivacia's features and it's wood, but she looks so human. And it makes Winter a little uncomfortable. He realizes from his vantage point on the dock that she is bare chested and he doesn't want to look there, but feels weirder looking in her lifeless eyes because she's not a human and he's uncomfortable with his uncomfortableness. Yes. It says, in the gloom, she, as she smiled down on him, she seemed more like a young woman leaning alluringly from a window. It was ridiculous. Aren't you coming aboard? She asked him, smiling. Of course, he replied. I'll be with you in a moment. And then as he's climbing up the gangplank, he 
kind of tries to place Vivacia in his life with what he knows about Sa's precepts. Live ships, so far as he knew, were unique to Bingtown. His instruction as a priest of Sa had never touched upon them, yet there were certain magics he had been warned of as running counter to the holiness of all life. He ran them through his head. The magics that deprived something of life in order to bring life to something else, the magics that derived something of life in order to enhance one's own power, and the magics that brought misery to another's life in order to enhance one's own or another's life. And none of them seem to apply exactly to whatever it was that awakened the live ship. So doesn't think it's evil and against all else, but can't quite place it. Right. It's really hard to wrap his mind around where exactly this falls in Saw's teaching. He talks about how he can't say that Vivacia's creation affected Efren Vestrit's life. Efren Vestrit would have died whether or not the Vivacia was there. And she just happened to become alive because of the death. And so it feels like a weird gray area. And I feel like he's young enough to have not really been able to get to too many gray areas in his studying. Right. It, so far, he's been in a monastery where everything can be black and white because he's still training, he's still learning. But here in real life, there are gray, gray areas, and so it's more confusing. Mm-hmm. I did want to point out, though, that the magics that Saw is against that you should stay away from sound a little bit like um, misuse of wit and skill. In what ways? Well, for one, let's see. Magic that disp- that deprives something of life in order to enhance one's own power. I feel like could be a descriptor of the wit because you are technically depriving an animal in some ways of its life, its natural life to yeah. gain powers of animals. And I feel like if you were to abuse that. I suppose like misuse as in like you're bonding animals too young and things like that. Right. Yes. Um, And then also the other one that is the magics that brought misery to another's life in order to enhance one's own or another life feels a lot like what Regal did. Well, through use of the skill when writing, um, Oh, what's his name? Will? Will. Yeah. Yeah. And what he did to others. So he, and he, also we see that there is punishment for using the skill to murder, which fits in with Saw's little nature of like things that take away life are to be, are unholy and you must stay away from. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think that's really interesting that there's, I mean, it's not perfect overlap, obviously, well, they but, could relate to those, yeah. But yeah, you can still. I mean, the descriptions are so general. They could yes. fit pretty much any magic <laughs> right. if you misuse it. Right. And, and those do kind of fit the White Prophets as well, what they're doing at Claris. I mean, yeah. specifically the Fool, no, but they are using people's lives and magic to gain power of and, their own. Yes. And live longer. And, and live longer. Yeah. And prosper. Like yeah. So he's grappling with thoughts of Vivacia and trying to see if she fits into an evil category of what he has known and can't quite place her in that. And he, in his thoughts, stumbles over a coil of rope. It's dark on board, but somebody laughs in the distance and he can't tell if it was at him, but I don't know. 
He gets angry about it. Yeah, he gets angry and then tries to remind himself that it's more foolish to be angry at somebody who is dumb enough to think it's funny that he fell or potentially not even laughing at him at all. Maybe for all he knows, they're sitting around in a group telling jokes and they just laughed at the same time. And I think it's really interesting. This is now the second time we've seen him have to fight his anger. And I find it interesting because that feels like a very Kyle trait of him. However, he is actively working to not yeah. let the anger control him. And I think it's really interesting to see that this anger trait of the Havens is not living well in him. <laughs> He's not allowing himself, but he does seem like his father prone to get angry and have prideful moments. However, well, he, he did have a very good example of that when he was growing. That's up. true, but he does work at trying to fix that. He recognizes that there's no reason for it. And he basically had three years, I think three years in the monastery of meditations. Yeah. So, so I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting to see in this chapter. I felt like, there were a lot of things that made him seem more haven, but also that show he is like healing. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets on deck, goes through his anger and then gets to the foredeck where he's sleeping and finds the blanket that was left out for him, but it is filthy and stiff in some spots from that filth. And he's trying to suppress his anger once again at it, at the insult. But eventually he's like, well, this isn't something to be weathered. This is the cruelty of men. And a priest of Saw was not expected silently to accept it, regardless of whether that cruelty was inflicted on himself or on others. He squared his shoulders. He knew how they saw him. The captain's son, a boy, a runt, sent off to live in a monastery to be raised to believe in goodness and kindness. He knew there were many who saw that as a weakness. We saw the priests and priestesses of Sa as sexless ninnies who spent their lives wandering about prating that the world could be a beautiful, peaceful place. Wintrow had seen the other side of a priest's life, and he had tended priests who had come back with, you know, plague or mutilations from that, you know, the, the prejudice out in the world, things like that. So he tells himself a clear voice and a steady eye, and he just wants to confront Torg and get a different blanket. Right. So I, I do want to briefly talk about how he thinks other people see him. Because we've yes. talked about that with Althea as well. Yeah. And how she overrates herself in uh, the eyes of the crew. But she's better compared to Kyle in the eyes of the old crew. Right. But she still <laughs> way overrates herself. Yes. Uh, for her, for Wintrow, he's like, oh yeah, I know everyone looks at the priests of Saw. And they're just prating out about how beautiful and peaceful the world can be. And I got sent off to a place of kindness and yeah. beauty. And he's just in his head, of course, biased towards like, how could these dumb people see that I was sent to make this world a better place for everybody? And that's they not see a weakness. me as weak. Yeah. yeah. No, it is really interesting. I think in that way, they are so similar because they kind of are jumping to conclusions. It's something that I think is done interestingly with Wintrow because he is supposed to be working on not making assumptions. I think 
part of what I like in Wintro is that on one hand, he is doing a lot of work. He's trying really hard not to hold on to petty grievances and to move past his anger and to work on not making snap judgments. And then a few paragraphs later is doing that. Right. And like, I just find it so human and childlike that like, there's this justification happening. And we see that with Althea too, that there's always justification for their anger, for things going wrong. And I feel bad because like Althea, Wintrow's version of himself stems from his father. However, unlike Althea, Wintrow's father gave him a not so good version to look at. And it's really but then, sad. But then also, unlike Althea, he actually has emotional intelligence or like some training in right. going through his emotions. Right. <laughs> and um, self-awareness a bit. Right. There is that a little bit. But I do I do feel bad for him because you can tell how much, subtly, how much Kyle's words really are affecting Wintrow. Right. Because yeah. as much as Wintrow wants to believe that it doesn't matter to him and that he just has to accept that they don't get along, it clearly does get to him and it does bother him that his father thinks of him this way because that is how he assumes everyone looks at him because that's how his father looks at him. And I just think that's really sad and interesting in this he's, character. And it's also, I mean, yeah, the the Kyle thing is definitely definitely true, but he's also seen that perspective from other people and specifically the right. other priests that come back with injuries or things like that. So it's just kind of Kyle's viewpoint is reinforced. Because right. the people, the priests who are gravely injured enough to go back to the monastery to require healing are the ones who suffered <laughs> the most at the hands of people. And that's kind of reinforcing the belief. Right. So he heads off into the night with the blanket, wanting to confront Torg, and comes upon three men who are gaming around a table, two of who are drinking, drinking very heavily. Throwing the blanket on the deck, he asks bluntly, and when did the night watch on board this ship begin drinking on duty? There was a general recoil from his direction until the three saw who it was. It's the boy priest, one sneered, and sat back, sank back down into his sprawl. Again, the flash of anger ignited in him. It's also Wintrow Haven of Vestrit lineage, and on board this ship, the watch neither drinks nor games. The watch watches. All three men lumbered to their feet. They towered over him, and all were brawnier with the hard muscles of grown men. One had the grace to look shamed, but the other two were the worse for drink and unrepentant. Watches what? A black-bearded fellow demanded insolently. Watches while Kyle takes over the old man's ship and replaces her crew with his cronies. Watches while all the years we worked, and worked damn loyal, go over the side and mean naught? The second man took up the first litany. Shall we watch while a haven steals the ship that should be run by a vestrit? Althea might be a snotty little vixen, but she's vestrit to the bone. Should be her that has this ship, woman or no. And Wintra kind of sorts through his replies that are running through his head and ends up saying, None of that has anything to do with drinking on watch. It's a poor way to honor Efren Vestrit's memory. The last statement seems to get through everyone, and the person who is um, not drinking says, like, I, I'm the actual one on watch. These two are my company. I'm not drinking, so... You know, it's fine. And uh, then Wintrow recalls his task, asks where Torg. They point him on the way because he's moving into Althea's cabin and he heads over to Torg. Right. Um, I do want to 
start by saying you skipped the line before or the one that, that started before you started that specifically says, as if possessed by grandfather's anma, he stepped boldly into the circle of their lantern, which I think is really important because there's this weird feeling for the rest of this chapter that follows Wintro that there's something weird. This There's this weird connection with the ship. And in this moment, he's channeling his grandfather, whether that is the ship's doing, whether that is Wintro's doing, or whether it's just something that he felt was right. I just don't, it seems odd because I don't think he would know that no gambling or drinking happens on the ship normally. That has to be something that the ship told him. Yeah, that's fair. And he does rebuke these sailors and they kind of listen mostly because he brings up that, you know, Efren died and this isn't a great way to (laughs) respect his memory, but he also gets to see firsthand why people might be upset with his father and him. Right. Nothing to do with him being a priest, (laughs) (laughs) but I also think it was really interesting that one of the sailors calls Althea a vixen and then that even if she is a vixen, she's a vestrit to the bone and she deserves it woman or not. I I don't know. I just think that's so strange. Why? Because why is she a vixen? Just because she's a woman on a boat like that no. wears pants. This is a snotty little vixen. Probably fiery and arrogant. (laughs) Right, but doesn't vixen denote some sort of like sultry attitude? No, I don't think so. I've only ever heard it used in a context where somebody's like somebody who plays hard to get. Hmm. So I guess I'm just reading this as that's such a strange thing to say about Althea when from what we've read from her point of view, she has no interest in any of the people. So I'm, uh, I'm reading on a, uh, a tablet here. So looking up the definition, cause handy dandy feature here, there's three uh, definitions for Vixen. One is a shrewish, ill-tempered woman. Mm. Two is a female Fox and three is a sexually attractive woman. So I, believe this one would be the shrewish ill-tempered woman she's a snotty little vixen yeah okay that's fair i guess although have we seen her have a bad temper i mean no but also (laughs) i guess towards kyle maybe she is like that all the time who knows now that i've said that apparently she like gets drunk and blabs and complains about things and yeah i don't know she's i think we see a lot more (laughs) A lot less from her, from her point of view. That's fair. And the crew has. That's, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, well, okay. She's also quick to anger as well. That's true. Which her father is too. <laughs> um, it seemed. Right. But, okay, well, never mind. Then I was reading it as the other, the final de- definition that you read. And I was like, that's just such a weird thing to say about her. Considering, <laughs> like, I don't think she's like doing anything sultry on the ship. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like she's being a normal person on the ship. Um, albeit a spoiled one, (laughs) but yeah, no, it's so anyway. Okay. If it's about that, then 
it's still really interesting to see that that's how they see her. Right. That she yeah. is this like spoiled princess sort of deal, but at least they know she cares about the ship. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's the thing. And, and she knows that they know that she would have run the ship pretty much the same as Efren did. Right. And change is hard. That's what they want is yeah. to keep things the same. Well, also they are threatened. Like he, he does say watch while Kyle replaces all of us with his own crew and we worked years for nothing. Right. It's the same place that Brashen is in uh, or was in where these people thought they had a home getting replaced now with without taking better offers on other ships that were presented to them. Right. Kind of leaves them stranded or feeling, you know, a bit of resentment for the transition here. He also, I, I do want to mention with your possession of his grandfather's anma, uh, the last parting words, he says, I don't think I should have been unchallenged coming onto the Vivacia as well. And right before, you know, he got onto the ship, he says, like, I am very unfamiliar with all of this stuff. So I, I do, I do like your theory there where saying, you know, I do not think I should have been able to board Vivacia unchallenged, even in our home port was kind of his grandfather's thing and kind of his thing because right. the sailor, the sailor immediately kind of calls him on it. Like, well, she's quickened now. She'll just call out if there's anybody trying to board her that we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think calling them to task on that is a very Efren Vestrit kind of thing to bring up. Like, Hey, the watch is supposed to call out and challenge people who are coming on board, blah, blah, blah. But a very winter thing that he doesn't know anything about live ships. Right. He doesn't know that the reason they wouldn't need to do that is because she is quickened. Yeah. So Wintrow kind of like questions him a little bit and the sailor replies, how could she not know what Captain Vestrit and his father and his grandmother knew of shipboard life? She knows. He looked aside and shook his head slightly as he added, I thought all Vestrits would know about a live ship. Wintrow kind of ignores that and says, thank you. And then says, I'll be finding Torg now. So yeah, a little bit of both. I, I don't see Wintrow kind of confronting about, Hey, you're supposed to challenge somebody who comes on board. Right. Yeah. Why would he know that? And yeah. Cause when, when would he have ever tried to board at night when there's right. nobody else? So I don't know. It's another thing where like, how does he have this knowledge? And like, clearly he's getting it from somewhere, even if he doesn't quite understand. And then, he goes towards Torg, as he said. And we find that Torg is indeed moving into Althea's room, as they called it, which we know was supposed to be the second mate's room. Yes. So it's technically the second mate's room. But he is moving in, and anything of Althea's that had not already been moved off the ship is kind of stacked in a pile to the corner to be moved later. And he is already putting things away. Wintrow kind of scares him when he opens the door, announces himself as being there. And he says that Torg almost looks guilty and moving his things in so quickly. But then as soon as he realizes it's Wintrow, he no longer cares. So he confronts Torg about, you know, saying my father said to you, to get me a blanket and Torg's like well you got one and Wintrow's like no no I have pride you know yeah, it's this, it filthy. won't do it's filthy yeah and Torg is basically like oh the priest boy think it's not good enough for him blah blah blah, blah. 
you know, if it's filthy, then wash it. And Wincho's like, well, that's stupid. We both know it's not going to dry in time. And it's just a whole back and forth of Torg just saying like, Oh, you're, you're too good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you think you're too good for what we have to offer. And Wincho just pointing out the obvious of like, no, I just want a clean blanket. Yeah. I've done as your father commanded and you have one. The cruel amusement in Torg's voice was less veiled now. Wintrow found himself responding to that rather than to the man's words. Why does it amuse you to be discourteous? He asked Torg, his curiosity genuine. How could it be more trouble to you to provide me with a clean blanket than to give me a filthy rag and force me to beg for what I need? The honesty of the question caught the mate off guard. He stared at Wintrow speechless. Like many casually cruel men, he had never truly considered why he behaved as he did. It was sufficient for him that he could. Quite likely, he had been a bully from his childhood days, and would be until he was disposed of in a canvas shroud. So he kind of looks at him and sees that Torg looks genuinely to be a slovenly, dirty man. Not dirty because of work, just ill-cared for. He's not washing regularly on purpose, not because he doesn't have the means. Yeah, so at that point, Winch was just like, I just don't care anymore. I'm just going to stop this confrontation. He specifically notes that, of course, he's not going to get through to this man because he would never understand Wintrow's own disgust at the filth because that's the kind of thing that this man lives in all the time. That uh, So they're just fundamentally not going to be able to understand each other, and he decides to walk away. He says, never mind, casually and abruptly. He turns away, and Torque kind of is surprised and leans out the cabin and yells after him. Puppy will probably complain to his daddy, I don't doubt. But I think he'll find his father expects a man to be tougher than to snivel over a few spots on a blanket. Perhaps, Wincho conceded, that was true. He wouldn't bother complaining to his father to find out. Pointless to complain about one night's discomfort. His silence seemed to bother Torg. You think you'll get me in trouble with your whining, don't you? Well, you won't. I know your father better than that. Winter doesn't even reply at that. And at the moment of deciding not to argue further, he had given up all emotional investment in the situation. He had, with, he had withdrawn his anima into himself, as he had been taught to do, divesting it of his anger and offense as he did so. It was not that these emotions were unworthy or inappropriate. It was simply that they were wasted upon the man. He swept his mind clean of reactions to the filthy blanket. By the time he reached the foredeck, he had regained not just calmness, but wholeness. Very interesting passage as well. We get an increased mention of Anma here, two in this chapter, and I believe I started reading the next chapter as well. There's two pretty quick in that one as well. Yeah. It's really interesting to see this use of Anma. <laughs> it it is very reminiscent to me of the skill in some ways. I think there are yeah. definite difference differences, although the reason they're different could just be trained versus not trained. You know, I mean, obviously in some ways the farseers are trained, but what was lost. Right. They, you know, they lost all their formal training knowledge and Galen was not a skill master. No. 
And the original skill master, we don't even know if she was fully trained on all of the scrolls. I assume hopefully she was. I think she was. She had access to all of them. They were her scrolls. Right. But what wasn't put in the scrolls? What was left off? Because it was something that was like a horse. You wouldn't describe it. Um, And I also wonder if maybe, too, this is like a different culture's version, that there are other things that they learn to do because of where they are and what their lifestyle is like. And... I don't know. I just find that really interesting. I find it interesting that he notes that he is bringing his anima back to himself instead of spreading it wide, which gives him more peace. We haven't had a description of him saying extending his anima outwards or anything like that. No, but he has those like things of, I don't sense any evil or good. Well, we have had him say that he had his anima extended outward, except I don't think he used anima, but he That's what I'm saying. There's never any mention of specifically Anma. I use right. my Anma or whatever. Well, I was just thinking whenever we first meet Wintro, he was too much outside of himself. Yes. That's what it said. Yep. Um, and we've already said like, yeah, that was definitely skill. And I think it is related here as well. And I think specifically it's tied into the meditations and self-reflection that he was taught in the monastery. And it's kind of interwoven together. It's all like Sa's beauty and things like that. So right. he has this anger and is extended outwards. And it it seems to me similar to when Fitz collects himself and just puts his walls up. Right. And it's combined with a self-reflection as well. Just like processing why you're doing that. What makes you want to collect yourself and put those away. And then just kind of finding... For Wheel of Time fans out there, finding the oneness or the void <laughs> and kind of centering yourself again to who you are and and what you're doing and what you're feeling. But just by focusing on the you, like what uh, the Farseers do in the Skill River right? when they're in that and they're just like have to collect themselves. They have to focus on who they are. Yes. And I think... I think it's really interesting that we have Wintro specifically saying that there is nothing wrong with disgust or anger by themselves. Like that isn't necessarily a bad thing to feel. It just isn't useful right now. And I find that a really interesting thought to have been given to him that specifically wasted on that man. Right. That's right now. (laughs) Right. That's fair. I made it a little bit nicer. But I think it is really interesting to emphasize that like emotions in general, there's nothing wrong with feeling an emotion, but sometimes you don't need to actually act on it or continue to feel an emotion. You can just acknowledge that it's there, Mm -hmm. but especially he says that he cuts them off. Now, I, I believe that this is more just a turn of phrase. I don't think he's, he's actually taking away those feelings from himself like we see Verity do in the skill with Fitz. Like, I think this is more of just like a mental, okay, I'm done feeling that emotion and stepping aside from it. Yeah, I didn't even think of that in that way. I just read it straight as (laughs) him just divesting himself of those emotions. Yes. Clearing his mind. So I did want to say, in case anybody was thinking that, although I could be convinced. (laughs) So he walks back to the front, cleared his mind, and he leans against the railing and looks out across the water. Specifically, he says that he had not just gained calmness, but wholeness as well. So he's feeling very good, very connected, and 
He feels a wholeness right now. He looks out over the vessels and his own ignorance surprises him. The ships were foreign objects to him, the son of many generations of traders and sailors. Most of them were trading vessels interspersed with a few fishing or slaughter ships. The traders were transom stern for the most part with aftercastles that sometimes reached almost to the mainmasts. Two or three masts reached high toward the rising moon from each vessel. He describes along the, uh, the shore there's the night market with a bunch of sounds and, and senses coming off from there that he can hear and smell. And he looks all over that, all of that cacophony and the light shining and all these different senses, and he says, and yet there's a peace to it. In response to his thoughts and that last spoken aloud sentence, Vivacia replies, because it is all as it should be. Her voice was a woman's timbre. It had the same velvety darkness as the night, with the same tinge of smoke. Warm pleasure welled up in Wintrow at the sound of it, and pure gladness. It took him a moment to wonder at his reaction. What are you? he asked her in quiet awe. When I am away from you, I think I should fear you, or at least suspect you. Yet now I am aboard, and when I hear your voice, it is like... like I imagined being in love would be. Truly? Vivacia demanded, and did not hide the thrill of pleasure in her own voice. Then your feelings are like to my own. I have been awakening for so long. For years. For all the life of your father and his father, ever since your great-great-grandmother gave herself into my keeping. Then today, when finally I could stir, could open my eyes to the world again, could taste and smell and hear you all with my own senses, then I knew trepidation. Who are you, I wonder, you creatures of flesh and blood and bone, born in your own bodies and doomed to perish when that flesh fails? And when I wonder those things, I fear... For you are so foreign to me, I cannot know what you will do to me. Yet when one of you is near, I feel you are woven of the same strand as I, that we are but extensions of a segmented life, and that together we complete one another. I feel a joy in your presence, because I feel my own life wax greater when we are close to one another. Wintrow reflects in that word in those words and really lets it seep into his whole soul. And he feels like he's listening to a blessed poet. He says, looks over the Harbor and his smile widens. And when her words had faded into the warmth of the summer night, he replied, so may a harp string struck strongly awaken its twin or appear high note of a voice set crystal to shimmering as you have wakened truth in me. He laughed aloud, surprising himself, for it felt as if a bird, long caged in his chest, had taken sudden flight. What you say is so simple, only that we compliment one another. I can think of no reason why your words should so move me, but they do. They do. Something is happening here, tonight. I feel it. As do I, but I don't know what it is. You mean you have no name for it, she corrected him. We both cannot help but know what it is. We grow. We become. Wintrow found himself smiling into the night. We become what? he asked her. She turned to face him, the chiseled planes of her wooden face catching the reflected gleam of the distant lights. She smiled up at him, lips parted to reveal her perfect teeth. 
We become us, she said simply, us, as we were meant to be. Read quite a bit of that, and it does switch to Althea to end this chapter, but that is basically, (laughs) Wintrow summed it up. It's a lot of fancy words to say, hey, we complement each other, and we feel a connection. Right. And they both reciprocate that. Yeah, so in a way this makes me think of Whitbond and that it's two like creatures deciding that they are like. Yeah. Although maybe Wintro doesn't quite get the bond that he is kind of accepting into his heart at this moment. But I do want to say I'm not sure if this is like a genetic thing where because he's Vestrit, he feels something for this ship or if it would happen to anyone who was on this ship. I, my thoughts are he is overwhelmed with this feeling of what he believes love to be. And it makes me think of dragon glamor that a bit dragons manipulate humans into loving them and showing them praise and doing what they want. And we know that Vivacia is made from the cocoon of a dragon. So I don't think it's impossible that potentially without knowing what she's doing, she is using that in some way to gain some type of comfort. So potentially it would work on any human that was you know, like open yeah. enough. I really do think there are blood connections though, just because of the people that inhabit Vivacia right. are three blood relatives. That's true. You know, if it was a mixture of people, like Paragon has a lot of different, you know, blood that has soaked into his planks. Right. A little bit different, but I I really think that since that's pretty much all Vivacia knows, that's immediately the connection. And she says whenever one of you, any one of you is around, she feels that connection. So, right. you know, probably Althea, Wintrow, Malta, and Selden, and Kefria. Right. I Well, I will clarify to say I don't necessarily, I'm speaking specifically on Wintrow's side. I don't, I am sure that there's some sort of weird connection on Vivacia's side because like you said, there is that blood in her that is the Vestrits for generations. But I think on Wintro's side specifically, I don't know if it's something that's happening to him because of genetics or if it's right. Yeah, like I said, fair. like some type of glamour or just, he seems to be able to open himself in the skill in a way that would allow him to become entangled with her a lot easier than somebody who isn't. Definitely. And we we saw kind of the same thing with Althea when she was diving into the memories. She just felt contentment and like she had to know more. And that's without Vivacia even being awake. So I think that it's fair to say, but I don't think it's, I, I, I do agree. I think it is very similar to a glamour, but it's not a purposeful thing. Right. But it's, and it's not a specific like, hey, I'm going to bond this kid. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess I wonder if. She, she's young too. Vivacia yes, like, yeah, doesn't she know doesn't what she's doing. Right. They, they say these beautiful words and then they don't really know what they're doing. Right. No, I do. I do wonder if like her and 
there is some draw to want to make him like her more because of the familial bond. Yeah. And knowing that this is her person. Like, I wonder if it wasn't all like three generations of the same person, if it was just like random people dying to make a live ship, would they bond with anybody that caught their fancy or, you know what Possibly. I mean? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, that's a thought exercise for sure. Right. I, I think, I think so, especially because she seems so scared to be alone and right. is looking for anything familiar. So anything that a live ship with different blood that they are different lives that they're encompassing. Yeah. Would deem familiar. So if someone was of the same blood as one of those people, or if somebody had the same demeanor as some of the other ones or, you know, same philosophies, that's why I think Brashen and Paragon get along so well together because they both feel deep despair when (laughs) Brashen ever goes over to Paragon. Right. You know, it's, it's the darkest points of life and Paragon can kind of be okay with that. Right. So I, I just think it's kind of that that similar nature, something something that would spark a kinship. Right. Well, I'm just thinking how later the Vivacia really likes Kenneth and there's he, no blood relation. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. He specifically woos her and tries and tries and tries for like mm-hmm. weeks. Right. And I still think even at the height of him, he would never be able to get rid of Wintro and keep sailing with her for very, very long. I mean, short trip, sure. But like, I think eventually he would need to keep that blood on there because I think the the bond is just too entrenched at that point. Right. And I mean, he was trying really hard, but he's not really a full person. And some of his person belongs to a different dragon, quote right. unquote, right. you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting. But it does open the door that there is a possibility that anyone, as long as they you get try, along with. Yeah, as, as long as it's open enough on both ends. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Interesting. But we do have this openness on Wintrow's side, too. And I think part of the reason why he feels this epiphany moment potentially is stemming from the fact that this is probably the first time in his life outside of the monastery where someone is affirming his way of thinking. Yeah. The Vivacia isn't making fun of him for having these kind of thoughts. The Vivacia is kind of going along with it and having the same feeling like she makes him feel not alone. And like, it isn't that weird to feel like this is weird because even she has that feeling. And I think that it's just, an experience where he has been his whole life told that he is weird and on the outside and outside of the monastery, this is giving him that same feeling of somebody thinks I belong and they appreciate what I have to say and they speak like me and they think deeply. So we jump from that night of contentment and growth and where they become us to Althea, who is drinking very heavily in some dive bar in the middle of a rough part of Bingtown. (laughs) (laughs) She is thinking about her day and feeling a lot of regret and a lot of guilt over all of this. Things have been bad before. Things have been flawed. 
but it was only today that she had made one stupid decision after another until everything was as completely wrong as it could possibly be. She shook her head at her own idiocy. She had conceded when she should have fought, fought when she should have conceded, but the worst, the absolute worst, had been leaving the ship. When she had walked off Ivesha before her father's body had even been consigned to the waves, she had been worse than stupid and wrong. She had been traitorous, false to everything that, she, that had ever been important to her. She shook her head at herself. How could she have done it? She had not only stalked off leaving her father unburied, but leaving the, her ship to Kyle's mercy. He had no understanding of her, no real grasp of what a live ship was or what she required. Despair gripped her heart and squeezed. After all the years of waiting, she had abandoned Vivacia on her most crucial day. What was the matter with her? Where had her mind been? Where had her heart been to have put her own feelings before that of the ship? What would her father have said to this? Had he not always told her, the ship first, all else will follow. She hastily drinks her newly poured glass down after the innkeeper takes her money and is trying to open her eyes wide, which those of you who are listening who have been way too drunk, you might share a similar feeling of like, I'm not drunk. I can open my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can look around. I can look sober. And uh, she's really beating herself up here. And she is kind of reflecting on all of her mistakes that she made just this past day and drinking in grief and in, I don't know, be out of guilt. Yeah. It's really interesting because I don't think she started the drinking out of guilt. I think the drinking has brought up that feeling of right. grief and guilt a little bit more. I think obviously she's being a little hard on herself. She, had a horrible thing happen to her. Multiple horrible things happened to her in the spans of a very short time. And she was not getting any support and she had to leave and that's okay. Like it was probably better for her to get away from that situation. Ultimately. Sure. It leads to some really unfortunate things happening, but I think it's not necessarily a bad thing for her to have prioritized not having to deal with that situation for any longer. Yeah. But she does, as she points out, she did leave the the ship in Kyle's care. And Kyle doesn't know anything about how to take care of a live ship and clearly has no interest to learn. Yeah. <laughs> so that part wasn't great. And she didn't even get to see her father's funeral where he was buried. But again, it's like grief is really hard. You can't control grief, really. They're like, I mean, you can in some aspects. Like you shouldn't just like, stab somebody because you're sad like like there are limits but well i think her getting away from the situation was just the only control she had left and she used that control to go to the bar <laughs> which is fine i get it but she does talk about how as she's sitting here trying to feel a little bit more sober she's realizing that the people around her are talking about the same things they've been talking about for the last two years here they were having the same conversation they've been having for the past two years. The newcomers were ruining Bingtown. The satraps delegate was not only overstepping his authority and in invest inventing taxes, but was taking bribes to ignore slave ships right on the harbor. 
The Chalcedians were demanding of the satrap that Bingtown drop their water taxes, and the satrap would probably concede for the sake of the pleasure herbs Charles had sent him so freely. The same old woes. Althea thought to herself, but damn few in Bingtown would stand up to do anything about any of it. And these are the problems that we got in a little bit more detail a few chapters earlier with Ronica. It is not good, but we have Althea who doesn't quite understand how that affects her. And so this just doesn't care how that affects her because it doesn't affect her. Right. She's she's just a sailor. (laughs) Right. And these people complaining is just annoying because they're not even going to do anything about it, which makes her think about her father. Yes. So the last old traders council that she had gone to, he had stood up and basically said, Bingtown's ours. We should do everything on our own, kind of cut people off, get our own patrol ship. Chalcedians don't dock here if they don't pay taxes. Just go completely, you know, solo, independent. Um, maybe still, you know, contribute the taxes to honor the original deals, but basically everything else, stop it. No right. slaves, no Chalcedians, nothing. And Althea remembers that a roar of consternation had greeted his words composed of both shock and approval, but when it came to the vote, the council had failed to take action. And her father tells her, wait a year or two, that's how long it takes for an idea to root here. Even tonight, most of them know that I'm right. They just don't want to face what needs to be done, that there must be confrontations if Bingtown is to remain Bingtown and not become Southern Chalcid. Saw sweat, the damn Chalcidians are already challenging our northern border. If we ignore it, they'll creep in here with in other ways. Face tattooed slaves working Bingtown fields, women married off at twelve, all the rest of their corruption. If we let it happen, it will destroy us, and all the old traders know that in their hearts. In a year or two, I'll bring this up again, and they'll suddenly all agree with me. You'll see. And then she remarks that he wouldn't bring it up because he is gone. But that is a lesson that doesn't really come up with Althea again, but it is an important note for the rest of the books because it has been a couple years and that idea is kind of taking root. And at the end of this book or at the end of, excuse me, this trilogy, they're very amenable (laughs) to doing that sort of thing. Yes. Also after the confrontations. Yes. Yes. Also we get a rare glimpse at Efren Vestrit caring about something that isn't the vivacia. Yeah. This is policy and things going on on land. This is showing Althea, like, hey, you need to be worried about stuff like this. It's important, even if it doesn't necessarily affect us. Like, we want to keep our way of life. We don't want the new way, which, to be fair, the new way is bad. But the interesting thing about that is that that new way is what Bingtown is now. There are slaves working the fields in Bingtown and indentured servants. mm, Excuse me. Sure. Wink, wink. (laughs) Um, and also 12 year olds are going to get married, especially Malta who is getting married soon. I believe. And isn't she 12? She's 12 right now. I think she gets married at like 14. Ah, much better. Right. (laughs) Well, everyone is opposed to it. Right. Kind of agree because it's already been promised. So. Everyone but the family of the person she gets married to, (laughs) including him, which whatever. Sketchy. We'll talk about it when we get there. But yes. So I think it is really 
cool to have this insight of Efren did care enough and had an idea of how to fix it. And Althea is grappling on to the idea that her father would be willing to do something. And these people are below that because they won't. They'll just complain, which is a fair criticism to have of a group of people or a party that, you know, whatever, like you can't just complain and do nothing, do something then. But Althea doesn't care enough to actually like try to fire up the troops, if you will. Right. And then she thinks about how, because her father is gone, that Bingtown was poorer and weaker now than it had been. And they didn't even know it, which is interesting because they are actually poorer and weaker now. And it's not just because her father died. It is because they have allowed all of this change in that was negatively affecting their economy and they haven't been able to fix it. But to her, it's because her father died. And then she starts thinking about, she wipes her tears as she realizes she's crying and then realizes that her sleeves are, both of her sleeves are wet and thinks about how her dress is a mess and her hair is probably a mess and how I'm sure her mother and Kefria would be scandalized to see her now and then thinks, well, good. They deserve it. She goes more into some self doubt about, or doubt about her family of like, how could they take this ship away from her? Is it because Ronica married into the Vestrits and wasn't truly Vestrit, but no, not after all these years with her father and things like that. And she says they must know, both of them, what Vivacia was to their family. And surely all of this was only some strange and awful but temporary revenge on her. For what she was not sure, perhaps for loving her father more than she had loved anyone else in the family. And she goes through all of this, these kind of steps and eventually is just like, well, I don't care what happens now. I just want to be on Vivacia. I, I will serve under Kyle. I will do anything. I just want to serve on Vivacia. I want to be with Vivacia. He could travel in pickled eggs and dying nuts as much as he wished, as long as she could be aboard Vivacia and be a part of her. And she's kind of sitting up and having this realization and having a sigh of relief, even though nothing really has changed except her acknowledgement that, yeah, I can debase myself as much as I want because I want something else much more. She wants that bond with Vivacia and Vivacia to do well. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to see this kind of childish mindset at play. Obviously, it is affected. She is drunk at the moment having these thoughts, so that could be part of the childishness. But we start with, the only reason this is happening has to be as some weird punishment from the universe to her or from her mom and sister to her. She's not really sure what she did wrong, but it has to be because they're punishing her. There can't possibly be another explanation that has nothing to do with her, which I think is pretty childish. Yeah. Very (laughs) self-centered. Yeah. Because again, I think I said it last week, Althea, you're not the center of the universe. Not everything is about you. But she seems to think it must be. And then she comes to the realization that, like, oh, I'll do whatever, including serve under Kyle as captain. But she doesn't really know what that means because she's never had to work on a ship 
like other people. I think right. in her head that means getting her cabin back, but doing whatever Kyle says. Yeah. Like she's not thinking, oh, I'm going to work at the lowest position uh, and work my way up, even if it's under Kyle. She's thinking, I'll do what my father and I had, just Kyle in charge instead, which isn't how things work. <laughs> and also, a really weird thing to concede now when she could have done that. Right, yeah. And from the beginning when he took over, like a lot of lacking of that self reflection that I said Wintro had right. kind of been taught. <laughs> right, yeah. She obviously has not been taught by the monks on how to self reflect. But she is just now realizing that she likes the ship enough to put up with it. Because I think before now, it wasn't really anything she ever worried about. She figured she would always have the ship. So she could act however she wanted. She could stand up for wanting better conditions because ultimately it's her ship. She's going to get it. And now that there's a real threat, she won't get to be on the ship. She has to kind of swallow her pride. Right. Yeah. And... With that realization, she realizes she is drunk too much, and she is very drunk at this moment, and trying to look around and find out where she is. She doesn't know what dive bar she, she's in. She sees a man passed out and slid from his seat to the floor. It's not unusual, but uh, there's usually somebody to drag him out of the way, or maybe if it's an unkind place, they'll throw him in the alley for people to rob them, and... It was even rumored that some innkeepers were kind of in cahoots with those robbers, those crimpers, as they call them, and uh, would throw people out there just to be robbed specifically in kind of a, a deal way. But Althea thinks that doesn't happen in Bingtown, just seedier ports. So she rises unsteadily. The lace of her skirt snagged against the rough wood of the table leg. She pulled it free, heedless of how it tore and dangled. This dress she would never wear again anyway. Let it tatter itself to rags tonight. She did not care. So she's just thinking home and bed. Tomorrow, somehow she would face it all and deal with all of it. But not tonight. Sweet saw, not tonight. Let everyone be asleep when she reached home, she prayed. And starts to head for the door. Has to step over the, uh, the passed out sailor. Steps a little bit too far, stumbles. People are laughing. She doesn't look back and just kind of keeps going. Only one person laughs, it says. Yeah. But also, I thought it was really interesting because this does mirror what happened to Selden. Except Wintrow. Or Wintrow, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I do that. It mirrors what happens to Wintrow in that there is a, there's and, a stumble yeah. and somebody laughs and there is a non-acknowledgement of the laugh. But on Althea's part, her fall was from being drunk and also her not acknowledging it was a prideful thing that like she didn't want to lose any more of her dignity by looking for who laughed. And whereas Wintro was thinking about how it's not really man of saw of him to be angry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she halts a moment on the wooden walkway outside the tavern, takes several breaths and almost sick, <laughs> grasping at the railing of it. And then here's the door open behind her, turns around and sees Brashen, after it takes a moment to recognize him. Althea, he replied wearily. Unwillingly, he asked, are you all right? And she has this idea in mind that she's going to go back to the Vivacia right now. She is, she has to see the ship tonight. She has to speak to her and explain why she left. She wants to explain herself and just be like, 
I'm sorry, basically. And Brashen's like, mm, tomorrow is good enough. <laughs> when you've slept and you're sober, you don't want her to see you like this, do you? She heard a note of cunning in his voice as he added, Surely she would be no more pleased than your father would. No, she'd understand. We know one another that well. She'd understand anything I did. Then she'd also understand if you came in the morning, clean and sober, Brashen pointed out reasonably. He sounded very tired. After a moment's silence, he proffered her his arm. Come on, I'll walk you home. Brashen has just gotten done with a very, very, very hard day of sailing. Uh, last day on his ship, where then his captain and moral guidepost died, and he was kicked off his ship unceremoniously, and then had to follow Althea around for who knows how long. Right. Not drinking, so he would be sober enough to protect her. Right. And then bring her home. Yeah. He's, he's not feeling it right now. No. And it's never fun to be the one that's very sober while somebody is super drunk. Yeah. It's like so annoying to deal with. So I can only imagine his, his exasperation in this moment of like, okay, Althea, we're going to get you home. And she's like, the ship. I need to go. <laughs> and he's like, nope. <laughs> uh, but she is, I mean, that was kind of her moment to have a long one-on-one with the ship. And she does talk to her later, but she has to disguise herself, I think. I think you're right, because after this... She like, sneak out. <laughs> yeah, because Kyle refuses to let her leave. Yeah. I believe. Um, but I think it's really interesting because... There, this makes me think of The Fool and that there are a lot of little threads here and each one is being woven and the choices that they're making is taking them on different paths. Yeah. Like if Althea wouldn't have left the ship at all, potentially she would have been the one. Winter wouldn't have felt compelled to stay. He would have gone home. Because Kyle thinks he can control Althea now with the way that she reacted after yelling at her. Right. Now, that's very much evident in the next chapter, but yeah, she could have possibly stayed on the ship the whole time. Yes. And even if she had left, if she had at this moment gone back to the ship and been on board, I'm sure Wintrow would have gladly switched spots with oh, her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He he would have been off the ship back to the priesthood. Yeah. None of his part would have happened. And they probably would have lost everything. Like the serpents wouldn't have been saved. Right. And Wintrow probably wouldn't have connected with the vivacia in any way right there would be no bonding if they didn't have this first night together that leads to later them getting along so well i believe mm-hmm. so i don't know i think it's just so interesting to see the little threads to like think out what changes if we change this and yet this thread that they have woven brings back the existence of dragons mm-hmm. ration also probably would have went into a spiral because he would have had Althea to look after. True. Or try to snap him out of things. And Brashen wouldn't have been allowed back on Vivacia. I don't know. It's just a lot of right. spider webs that branch out from those. So. Yeah. It's mostly a Wintro chapter. We get a little epilogue with what happens to Althea. Um, and you were right. She is escorted back to her house at the end of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet, but at the end to her house and not Paragon. That happens later. Right. Um, no, definitely having Wintrow's perspective is really interesting. Obviously, he doesn't quite grasp some of the family dynamics that 
we can know a little bit better because of whose heads we get to be in. Right. But he does see them from a point of view that gives us more insight. And I don't know. It. I was just thinking about how when Althea said she wants to go back to the ship, Kyle got really mad when Vivacia was talking about the ship specifically uh or the or i'm sorry vivacia was talking about althea yeah yeah and like saying she wouldn't leave me i think that really set kyle off um but it also made me wonder like is kyle so i i don't know a good way to phrase it is he so flippant towards vivacia because it is a woman figurehead do you think he would treat her any differently if it was a man figurehead mm, i don't know maybe Maybe a little bit, but I still think he's just more... Like this is an object? Yeah. That's fair. Wintro, like, describes him as addressing it as he would address any other crewmate, so I feel like it would be kind of the same, just okay. like, I'm the boss of you. That's fair. I just, I was just wondering, thinking about it, like, I wonder if a little bit of his, like, annoyance stems specifically because it is a woman figurehead. I mean, it could, but I don't think it plays as much of, of a role, yeah. right. Interesting. Okay. Anyway, thank you so much for joining in and our discussion this week. If you have anything to add to our conversations, please let us know. Maybe some more talks about Anma or skill or dragon magic or wit, how that all kind of relates and links together. It's always fun to hear, you know, theories and, and brainstorming about the magic system because it's so nebulous. So please let us know. We're at isfitshappy at gmail.com if you want to email us. And you can message us or comment directly on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter posts about our episodes. We're on isfitshappy on all three of those as well. And we do pop in and out of uh, the Robin Hobb subreddit or on, on Reddit in general. If you want to message us on that, we're uh, user isfitshappy as well. So please let us know what you're thinking. Yeah. Okay, so now we have a few things that some people brought to our attention. So we're going to bring to your attention. <laughs> um, a lot of Ronica stands this week that are kind of defending Ronica. Yeah, um, we've talked about it before a little yes, bit. Yes, yeah. no, um, totally fine. I, I think that's fine to do. Um, we'll start first with a comment we got on Facebook from Ellen. Ellen talks a little bit about how she views why Ronica chose Kefria because we did touch last episode on like what would happen if Kefria didn't take over. What if she didn't take the boat? Like probably nothing would really change socially because Althea kind of is, has been known to be the one who would be taking over the ship. But Ellen brings up the really good point that Potentially the problem is that Althea is taking over all the sea things and then Kefria would be seen as taking over the land problems. Therefore, the debtors with the land issues who are betting on the Vivacia being profitable 
would feel that there might be a rift because Althea doesn't really care about land. And so is she basically going to- increased risk in case relationship goes sour between right. the sisters. Yeah. Right. So there's more chance of them not getting any payment because Althea won't feel that she needs to help the land debt. Yeah. So it's just another reason why Ronica might, I, I feel like that is a reason. It's just not the most important reason, but it is a good one to bring up because right. I think that is talked about later on. Right. In the books. Ellen also brings up the fact that with reading ahead, she doesn't know what other debts the Vestrits have outside of the ship because that seems to be their only or at least most major debt. So she doesn't really know why that would be the most fearful thing, but yeah. sees it as a point of view. And, and my my thought on that is at least my grasp of reading through these books is that their lands aren't in debt at all. It's just that, like Ronica says, they're making the same amount of stuff, the same quality of things. They just can't sell it because everybody else sells it cheaper or they have cheaper labor. You know, So they're not producing as much profit as before and they're trying to use all of those profits to cover the massive debt they have of the ship. So yes, the ship is the big debt and the only big debt that they have but you know they might be borrowing you know just to get ahead like payday loans you know they might be borrowing hey give us whatever we need now and two weeks later when we have our harvest we'll pay you back in this you know they might be doing those kind of things just to stay up on their payments on the ship so it, it kind of works hand in hand so if the investors or the debtors see any chance of risk or tearing apart of those two holdings, then they can't cover for one another. Right. And I also think something to think about is like the farming does take money to run. And so while it is generating profit, is it generating more profit than what they're spending to keep the farm running? Because if it's not, then it's becoming an issue of can you afford to keep running this farm? And if you, you have to also pay off another debt. What do you do with the farm that is making you no money? It's not losing you money, but it's not making you money either. So yeah, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of intricacies that go into this idea. And I agree that it is still a little confusing why she would think this is the only way, but I kind of get the idea that Ronica Vestra is a little headstrong and she has figured out a way that she thinks will work. And so she's not really going to look at other ideas because this must be the best one because she thought of it. And it ties kind of directly into a comment or a message that we got on Instagram from Amir saying that, uh, also defending Ronica, he <laughs> specifically says, I guess I'll, I'll spend the next few years defending Ronica once a week. Again, Amir, I'm a fan of Ronica. I love her character. <laughs> she does make a lot of wrong decisions, like you admitted in here as well. Sure, but it all works out at the end, kind of. So, you know. Yeah happy-ish, well, bittersweet ending, I guess, is Robin Hobb's classic. But uh, Amir specifically is saying that in in their opinion, Ronica is right on the money to give the ship over to Kefria. At least that's what really, really makes sense from her eyes. With the things that Ellen mentioned, sure, but also 
the discussions that we've kind of touched on before, but I'm guessing last episode we didn't kind of all bring up again and, and touch on it. Right. Because uh, Amir wants to, to drive home the point that Althea is young, spoiled, does not have any experience, and has no attachments on land. While Kyle, being a dick he is, has a family to care for and therefore has to have a stake in what happens and and can feel the threat of the debt from the land right. and has to return to Bingtown and help out the family because that's where his kids are. Althea, self-admittedly, doesn't really care about the land or how the holdings are doing because she just doesn't care and doesn't think it affects her. So that... In in tandem together, yes, can definitely, and I think we said this last episode as well, we both can definitely see where Ronica is coming from and how Kyle makes sense. We just hate it. Right. We just, no, <laughs> we just I, absolutely hate it. I, I don't know. I like. I wish there was a different option. I wish that it didn't have to be between Kyle or Althea. Like, it would be so nice if there were more options, but there aren't. And I don't know. I think it's really hard. And we're being really hard on Veronica, obviously she doesn't know what's about to happen. She doesn't know Kyle's about to deal with slaves or be a horrible person as bad as he is. But she did choose him over her daughter's wants. And I still feel as though part of that is stemming from the jealousy that her daughter is more free than she gets to be. Yeah. Like I, I obviously there are good reasons why she chose it and I get it. And I like see the reasoning behind it if I didn't know anything else about Kyle. But I also know that she has some issues she needs to work on. (laughs) And so I don't know. I, I don't know. There, there isn't a good answer. I, and I should be a little bit nicer to her. I'm sure, but I probably won't be. So I'm sorry. That's fine. (laughs) Honestly, more entertaining if you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much, Amir, and thank you, Ellen, for bringing up those points. Yes. it's. Uh, I always like diving in on how decisions look stupid, but but also Robin Hobb does write them from the correct perspective usually. Right. So yeah, and also what better decision was there? You know, like there isn't really. And lastly, we have an email from Jonas. Speaking specifically of different topics, but ones that are interesting and kind of relate to this tangentially, at least this series, more specifically, dragons. And what importance was Icefire? Yes. <laughs> Very tangential, but I mean, this is all kind of bringing about dragons and things like that. And I thought this was an interesting topic to discuss as well. So specifically, Jonas writes in, that the fool claims a Farseer heir is essential to the return of dragons, and Dutiful is pivotal in the return of Icefire. The problem is that I don't feel Icefire was necessary for dragons to return. The dragons of the Rain Wild Chronicles turn into true dragons on their own after all, so even without Icefire there, there would have been dragons again. And he goes on to say that maybe Fitz was so important in the downfall of the Whites, without that maybe dragons would have been brought down again. That's beyond the uh, Tawny Man trilogy, and the fool said that's beyond his time. And then also, um, the best that Jonas can come up with is saying, without ice fire, Tintaglia stays with the fledgling dragons, and they never learn to fend for themselves, and therefore are weaklings forever. So ice fire is just there to lure Tintaglia away. 
Yeah. And I think it's a really interesting topic because Ice Fire is kind of irrelevant in some ways. However, I think he's kind of important in if you just look at dragons themselves. Not not like the human interaction or who saves what or anything. Just Ice Fire was a dragon from before the cataclysm. Right. He knew he knew how to be a dragon when there were the heights of the dragons. Tintaglia is kind of has patchy memory ish. Right. Like, it's not perfect because she's was in cocoon for so long. She has a mate to make more dragons possibly that are quote unquote true and real dragons. And he's there as like an example, you know? And also I think he shows up for like plot points later on. Right. But anyways, that happens. And yes, I think it is important that Tintaglia was lured away to allow the young dragons to grow, but she was already kind of just sick of it and didn't want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I don't know. It is really interesting to think about what, is it that Fitz does that helps the dragons? Because it really does kind of feel like the dragons are helped most by the stuff that goes on in the, in the live ship trader series and the Rainwild Chronicles. Like it feels like the people of Bing town do more than Fitz does. Right. But obviously like, like you said, there's no way to really know. And like, potentially it is because the stopping of the whites permanently yeah without the destruction of the whites ultimately dragons could go extinct again yeah i feel like fitz does everything that is very important to keep the dragons alive and the small or the the more localized trilogy and quadrology are the more visible things that immediately get the dragons up and running right it's the first the serpents and then and then the dragons so Fitz, without Fitz's groundwork, without him, you know, doing all that other stuff before, they don't survive in my eyes. Right. No, it is really interesting, though, to try to figure out Mm -hmm. why or what is making. Yeah, it's all speculation, too, because like Ice Fire doesn't seem important. But I think just in the general, I don't know. I think he is because the Rainwild Dragons aren't dragons as they were before they've changed right they spent way too long around humans they spent way too long dependent on humans they spent way too long not being real dragons being serpents that don't know their memories there's hebe that's basically not super intelligent doesn't remember her name dog (laughs) yeah doesn't remember her name at all there there's just really weird things about them that are quirky and to have somebody like ice fire and Tintaglia as an extension could potentially prevent them from just breeding into others eventually, you know, right. yeah. with too much human influence. So I feel like that diversification in the gene pool is very important for the future of dragons there. That's a good point. But thank you for writing in. Yeah. Good thought process either way. Yeah. <laughs> and Jonas, when you do hear this episode in... I don't know, like 70 episodes. No, in like 50 episodes from where you're from or 40. Thanks for writing that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. So as always, we enjoy hearing from you guys. I had one last question for you, Luke. Yeah. And this one's from my own brain. But as I read this chapter and we got to see a little bit more of Efren, I was thinking, what is the difference between Efren and Kyle, and not Kyle, sorry, Efren and Kenneth that makes Efren a good guy, but Kenneth a bad guy? And hear me out. This is why I ask. Both of them make decisions that are good for the greater public that would are innovative and help for the betterment of society. Yeah. Are willing to make changes against the grain because it's what would work and respect their crew and are good sailors. But we think that Kenneth is a bad guy. Obviously, we're in his head. We don't think Vestrit is a bad guy. Kenneth does everything out of revenge for a need for revenge. He doesn't have empathy. He wants to erase everything that Urgot has ever existed for. And he takes it out on people around him. Even if he is lucky and his plans of selfishness to you know, increase his own standing and to become a king and everything like that happen to help other people and are good ideas for other people. Even if some of them are just like, hey, everyone needs to shower more just because I can't <laughs> right. smell, you know. Uh, I think it just comes from a different place and a different want. Efren Vestrit, while not necessarily, I wouldn't call him selfish, but he was very family centered around what his family, like doing right by his family. He was also very concerned with Bingtown as a whole. And while seemingly a little, I don't know, xenophobic, if it's the right word, of other cultures coming in, in this case for the Chalcedians, it's the right, right choice. Right. <laughs> but he is, he is concerned about you know, the well-being and the future of the town and all of its people in general. And Kenneth just seems to want to better himself. So I think, as I mentioned before, it's a lot about intention. And also, you know, the other really crappy stuff that Kenneth does personally. Right. right? Yeah, that's fair. That's <laughs> to fair. Althea and to his mother and to right. Wintro and to, I don't know, Etta and to <laughs> everyone. That's fair. I think, though, my thought process... Also, no empathy. (laughs) My thought process in this, though, is that we don't know Efron hasn't done horrible things or that he has empathy. He seems to not care about things if they don't fully affect him. Like with his wife taking over the books when she needed help and was begging for his help, he kind of was like, you got it. And was willfully ignorant of how to help and didn't try to make any changes in her life. And that was his family and something that should have directly affected him. And he didn't seem to care enough to help. In this chapter specifically, you called it out too. He stands up before Bingtown Council and says like, hey, these things are going to affect the whole town. We should do these things to change it. Right. I know, which is so weird to me that he doesn't help his (laughs) wife when she asks for help. (laughs) But like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, but that's also, that's something Kenneth would do. That looks good to take a leadership role to say, hey, why don't we put a tower there 
to stop people from coming in land and hurting the pirate isles, you know? Do like, you think Efren Vestret wanted to become the leader of Bingtown? I don't know. Do you think it was ulterior motives to that? There's no way to know because we don't get in his head. All right. So you think Efren is the same as Kenneth? I got it. <laughs> I'm just saying that without the in his head perspective, he could be. Since we don't know, he could have no empathy. He could have done horrible things. We The only perspective we get of him I is from... I think the fool is as worse as Kenneth then. We never get inside the fool's head. The fool could have done terrible things. The fool could have killed people in the off time. No, because the fool openly has doubts for other people to pick up on and is like worried about their idea not being act. a good one. Consummate actor that has assumed multiple roles in their life. <laughs> Narcissistic to think about other things, calling themselves beloved. Only has latched on to one person. Okay, well. The fool is the same as Kenneth. No, they're different. <laughs> this is this is how I feel like you comparing Efren and Kenneth to me. Like it just doesn't make sense. Like th- there are so many context clues, so many different people that actually liked him <laughs> and things and people close to him, including people? his wife, that were like, yeah, he was a great person. That's how people close to Kenneth feel. No, not when Joe and Etta at the end. Not them at the end. They wanted to respect his memory. So they never told, like, they never mentioned anything outside of it. But they don't end on, like, a great note with Kenneth. Okay, well, then how do we not know that the people close to him... Because we're uh, in Ronica's head. Okay, well, (laughs) (laughs) touche. I don't know. I just feel like they're, like... I don't know what your thing with with Efren is. Because I don't... (laughs) I just don't know. I don't like him. I just <laughs> I don't I don't like how he treats his family in some ways and that's fine I guess. It doesn't make him a villain. He's not as bad as Kenneth, but I was just trying to point out the fact that like we know Kenneth is bad because we get to see in his head and we get to see like where his intentions stem from. Right. We have no idea where Efren's intentions stand, stem from and so I was thinking like Yes, he does so many good things, but so does Kenneth. Like, Kenneth ultimately is making the place better, like, the Pirate Isles better for people and is standing up for their rights and has good ideas and tries to get them to be more independent, even if that means through a monarchy, but which ultimately helps him. I mean, it's definitely an interesting thought, but I I feel like there are just too many little things that point towards Efren's intentions being a lot truer than Kenneth's ever are. That's fair. Just like, um, you know, just just his morals in general, you know, taking a stand of never trading up the rain wild. That's fair. Being totally against slavery. <laughs> yeah. When Kenneth doesn't care if they free the slaves or not because he just wants his live ship, you know, right. like just just little things that comparing the two is just makes them completely different okay. in my mind. That's fair. I'd say the same thing about like Verity, you know. Yeah. I mean, you have said similar things, not compared them to Regal, but. (laughs) No, because the difference is that Verity isn't good at peopling. Like he's not, Mm -hmm. he doesn't seem to have the skill to manipulate the way Regal does. He clearly knows how to manipulate his. Neither does Efren. How do you know that? How do you know that Verity doesn't? 
he was he was raised as a prince too because like, that's that's what i'm saying like there's i don't know i'll tell you why okay okay from fitz's point of view that's very limited and he's very okay dumb. <laughs> Verity gets a lot of hate. He doesn't, he's not able to utilize Chade's network to spread good rumors about himself that work. He's not able to effectively make decisions that make him look strong or put him in a better place as a ruler versus Regal's ability to manipulate every single situation at the drop of a hat. He can change whatever he's doing. There's none of this like, Thinking five steps ahead. You have to remember that Verdi wasn't the ruler, though, ever when he was at Buckkeep. He was always the king in waiting and being utilized as a weapon. And then he left and then Shrew dies. And then Regal steps in and can utilize all those, like the rumors that he's been placing the whole time, the seeds. Right. But for three years, Verdi was locked in his tower, basically, and being a recluse. Right, but I'm saying, like, if he were like Regal, he would have been able to play the game even from that. If he, if we want to, like, compare him to being able to, like, seize hmm. the power. Interesting. There's no hint of that from him. <laughs> he is content to do the greater good, even at the expense of his life. We've lost track of the, the, the thread of this a little bit. A little. But... It's just a thought process that I was having yeah. that helps, like, I, I feel like... Explains where I'm coming from, why I'm thinking like potentially Efron isn't as great as we think he is. I don't know why my deal, what my deal is with him or why I need like feel the need to continuously be like, everybody should hate Efron. <laughs> we, so yeah, I mean, you are right. We don't get intentions from him because he's in the story for like two chapters that he's talking. Ever. Right. And even <laughs> so, that is like half drugged, half right. asleep, like. So it, it all comes from firsthand account remembrances of what he's doing and how Ronica remembers him and, and things like that. But through all of those, I really think that nothing stands out that he did anything anywhere on par of anything that Kenneth did. That's fair. That's fair. I guess I shouldn't. I don't know. I'm not trying to say that they're the exact same in any way. I just, I think my thought was with Kenneth, like there is so much good that he's doing and we still, we know he's a bad guy and obviously more goes into it than just the good that he's doing. But like, what is the line at which he stops becoming like what parts of Kenneth can we take away before he's no longer a bad guy? Like the stuff he does to Althea, if that doesn't happen, is he a good guy? What happens with Etta, like how he treats Etta, if he doesn't have that, is he a good guy? You know what I mean? Like I'm, I, I think what I'm trying to do is like, where is the line between what makes somebody a good person and what makes them a bad person? There, where there's no line. Yeah, I I don't think you can you can look at this like, um, like Wintro trying to find good and evil, right? Because Robin Hobb is writing people who do good and evil things, who do right. bad and good things. You know that there is no distinguishing line. No, yeah, definitely. But I think I think in my mind, the way I'm reading these characters, it just is interesting to me that we have a character whose direct decisions are not the best he could make hurt his family can like mostly his daughter and his wife. And 
yet we still view him in this great light because of the nice things that he does, which don't get me wrong. I think like the good things he did are amazing and it's great that he was willing to stick to his morals and to do those sort of things. But I think it's funny to take that image of somebody that we don't get to have the inner thoughts of and turn that towards Kenneth, who is doing also really good things and changing and using morals. However, we have this, we have his inner dialogue and see how vile he is on the inside. So I guess maybe, okay. uh, I mean, thought experiment then going off of your thought experiment mm-hmm. is the same true, but opposite for Kyle. He is doing all of these horrible things. It seems from our points of view, right? But in his mind, is he like, I'm doing the best thing ever for that's going to save my family. I love everyone here. I want us to succeed. Cause that's how I read Kyle. Is that like, he is trying his best to do everything properly. He just wants it to work out, but he's making bad decision after bad decision and being a horrible person. I think the difference is his inability to understand when he's actually helping. Kenneth knows when what he's doing is helpful And he can recognize whenever he even accidentally does something good. He knows whenever something he's done does not helpfully affect others, whether or not he cares, different story. But there's like an acknowledgement there. Efren probably knows that what he's doing is good, right? Like he is bringing up more morality points and other people are agreeing with him. Whereas Kyle Nobody ever agrees with him and he doesn't ever learn that lesson. So I feel like the fact that he is standing in the face of people telling him you're wrong. And instead of growing from that to like make better decisions to actually help his family, he's just digging his heels in is what makes him bad. Like just overall bad. Even if at his core value, the thought is I love my family and I want to do what's best for them. Ultimately, he doesn't care enough to do what's best for them by learning as much as he can. He just wants to do what's best for them as long as that fits on his narrative. And that's the difference to me. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah. So that's why he doesn't equate in there because it's a different thing. That's why I feel like Kenneth is a closer guide to Efren. But yeah, I don't know. Ultimately, like you said, it's all gray. Morality is gray anyway. And it doesn't really matter. There is no such thing as a truly good or truly bad character. I should be nicer to Efren. I hear your underlying subtext. No, not necessarily. (laughs) Same way that you will probably not be nicer to Ronica, the choices that she makes. It's fine to have these conversations. It's fun. Yeah, you definitely. But I just... I just mean, I, I recognize that maybe I'm being unfair, but <laughs> I think it is still important to bring up the thought exercise of, yeah. you know, like, why do we think this way about these characters? And could we be swayed to think a different way? If you guys think of anything to contribute to that, or if you have thoughts on, you know, comparing Kenneth and Efren, please let us know. See you guys next week.